Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're ready to get started. Okay, everybody. Good evening, everybody, and I am David Mercura Rivera, filling in for Matt Kressel, who's celebrating Rosh Hashanah, and uh, Happy New Year to those of you who celebrate. I want to thank Ellen and Matt for letting me guest co-host tonight. It's my pleasure. By the way, we're still waiting for word books. Uh, the update is they're still stuck on the subway, but they're they're still coming. So hopefully, hopefully they will appear. Chris Sharp does have uh, copies of his book. He always comes prepared. He has he has copies of the Elementalist available for sale. Please come up, buy a copy. He'll autograph it for you. Um, Yes, let's hope so. So it is my pleasure to introduce our second reader of tonight. That's Chris Sharp. Chris Sharp is the author of Cold Council, a human-free post-Ragnarok, dark fantasy romp, and The Elementalists, a YA epic about dragons and climate change, with new installments coming soon to both series. His articles have appeared in Torg.com, and he also writes extensively for feature films and episodic television. Prior to moving to Massachusetts and committing full-time to writing, he worked as an independent film and commercial producer in New York City. His photography has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Times Magazine, his drawings in the Corcoran Gallery of Arts, and some of the films he produced have won awards at festivals around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Sharp. So yes, this is a human-free story. I'm going to try to do some funny accents. Uh, we'll see if my voice holds. It's also kind of mean-spirited. I wrote this in about uh, I wrote this in about three months after I moved to Massachusetts. It was a really bad winter and. I was not pleased with some of my life choices, and this just kind of came out in an angry spew for all of you to enjoy. <laughs> From the high branches of a beech tree, black on black eyes watched the goblins retreat into the distance. The wolves had sensed Agnes's presence. They were right to be scared of her strange scent, like the dank, rich soil of a bog overlaid with wild spices and anise. These wolves had never smelled a proper night hag before, let alone the last vestige of she who had spawned the demon wolf himself, Fenrir Odinsbane, Hound of Ragnarok. Agnes had almost turned the wolves against the goblins, filled them with such hunger and ferocity that they would have eaten their riders and then each other until only the strongest and most insatiable of their ranks remained. Once that had been how she'd chosen which wolves to breed, culling the pack so that the only the largest beasts remained to run and fight beside the giants of the Jotunheim. But she needed the noses of these wolves to find the troll who would be king. Now it was he alone who carried the promise to rekindle the ancient battle that she had sparked so many ages ago. While the rock wolf riders had spent the day running down and then back up the mountain to ford the river, Black Agnes had filled her empty stomach on meat, organs, and brains, and then asked the spirits of the air for a lift. 
they placed her gently among the upper branches of the tree where she'd taken a nap as she waited for the hunting pack to pass by. She was the color of tar, her limbs like the gnarled branches of the trees she hid within. Even the keen eyes of the smallest goblin scout could not have picked her out from the night scene if it had locked its gaze right on her. Images of the same goblin came back to her from the life that had come before, the part of her that had been ghoul vague and would always be never forgot. This goblin had been there at Aunt Agnes's demise. It had laughed with its fellows and thrown spears at her withered form. Now the tiny imp vibrated at a different frequency than the others, and Agnes recognized the dark magic at work in its little body. Him she would eat in full, take back what was wrongfully stolen. That had been a potion most precious, the nectar of Amrit, a recipe passed down from the golden goddess herself. Gulveig had learned its mix from lovely Freya, who had been a queen of the people and for an age, the one who had united the tribes to keep the peace between the old gods and the new. It was a concoction steeped in whispers and shadow, a link between the worlds and a solution to the riddle of death. No goblin of the rock wolf clan deserved to taste its mystery. Only those who were destined to spin legend from life. Black Agnes closed her eyes again, remembering Anger Boda, her namesake, in her final days. She could still picture the vast field of Ragnarok from atop the high cliff on a mountain range that was no more. She could still feel the land shake as the giant stormed into battle, hear the piercing howl of Fenrir as he broke from his chains and gave fear back to the night. She'd watched with pride as her daughter, Hel, called an army of the dead to rise from the earth, and the sting in her nostrils was still fresh from her middle child's poison breath as Jormungand, the Midgard serpent, rose out of the oceans to swallow whole the world of the gods. But those were old stories. It was time to carve new tales from the dwindling remnants of her people. Agnes's arms and fingers ticked and then creaked as they broke from the wooden mold they had assumed to become arms once more. The twisted claws of her feet came away from the trunk they had fused with, and a shudder of life licked through her form like an electric current. She would descend and follow the pack's trail. When she found the prodigy of death, she would teach him how to take back the dark places of the dream and use his killing gift to show the world that some nightmares should never be forgotten. <laughs> I'm not starting at the beginning of the book because I just want to confuse you. <laughs> the first sensation always felt like an abrupt horse kick to the chest. That was the heart remembering to beat, and then came the burning wave as neither Nora's lungs filled with air again in a desperate heave. His eyes registered light out of the darkness sometime around the second torturous inhale. Once the air had reached his brain, but for the first few seconds, he couldn't see anything but blurry colors, in this case, the searing orange glow of the campfire. The noxious skunk waft of the damn fox found his nose next, and he was vaguely aware once again of his fingers groping for the knives that were no longer there. The troll materialized out of the blur on the far side of the fire, scanning over the runic body map that neither nor had hidden inside a secret pocket in his rucksack. The goblin instinctively snarled and tried to sit up, only to discover that now his arms and legs were bound tightly with rope. After a few guttural rasps, he found his voice again. Get your fucking foul hands off from me, map, you troll scum! <laughs> the troll just chuckled. He held up the crinkled page, and his unsettling gaze narrowed as he looked between the map and either Nora's face. Fine trick indeed. You come up with this yourself. I'll gut you, you troll. Watch you bleed out on the rocks like I done your kind before. Easy now, little fella. You don't want to hurt Slod's feelings. He'll put the axe back in and then see how those nifty runes work on fire. <laughs> the troll motioned to the roasting fox on a spit above the flame. He'd added more wood and stoked the coal bed nice and hot. More meat on you than the little red dog, and Slod's getting real hungry. 
Neither Nora scanned the clearing for some means of escape, but all the knives and the huge axe were resting against a newly cleaved log that the troll was using as a seat on the opposite side of the fire. The knots that bound neither nor were a little sloppy, and he was pretty sure that he could dislocate his shoulder and get his hands free if he had a couple moments to himself. But the troll didn't seem to miss much. Any bit of you not marked, asked the troll with his deep rumbling voice that seemed always on the cusp of wicked laughter. Neither nor tried to betray nothing, but he tried too hard. Hmm, haven't finished her yet, I. No worries. Your secret's safe with Slod. The troll winked before lowering the map. He picked up the goblin's moon blade instead. You seem good and handy with a knife, though, and you recognize Slod for what he is. Despite his predicament, facing the living embodiment of his nightmares made neither nor want to talk. I killed trolls like you at the Battle of the Moon Blades in Bloodclaws twenty years past. You're supposed to be dead. How about that? Agnes was right, but Slod heard it was the Moonblades all died that day. Yet, here's the two of us, talking and breathing. The troll ran the curve of the blade across the back of his arm and drew blood in a thin line. What, you turn tail and run? Neither nor puffed himself up bigger. No running here, troll. Fought and died with me clan. Was the best goblin with a blade there was. And I took five of your big fuckers with me before I fell. What's your excuse? Slud was just a baby, old man. Him and his little auntie slipped away and been hiding out since, preparing for this day. Now, just Slud's left and the day's come. The troll stood with a map in one hand and the moon blade in the other. His deep, dark eyes suddenly became predatory. Preparing for what? Neither nor hissed, trying to mask the jolt of fear that shot through him. Revenge, the troll answered with a humorless smile. Slud's come to break the mountain, and then the whole world after. The troll stepped closer, and the overbearing reek of fox spray that wafted off him was enough to make the goblin shudder. He rounded the fire with a poke of the browned, roasting meat and came to a halt above neither nor. The shadow he cast held an oppressive weight as he tested the heft of his comparatively tiny curved blade in his hand. He dropped his piercing gaze to the helpless goblin once more. You kill me hog-tied, and I promise to come back and hunt you till the end of your miserable days, you scum, neither nor shouted. Kill ya? No, no, little man. Slud's got big plans for ya, the troll said with a sharp smack of his lip against his tusk. But Slud needs you hungry and angry. And it's just about time to eat. No hard feelings, eh? He raised the hooked blade above him as the goblin snarled and winced in anticipation of the blow. But Slud paused. Oi, what's your name, friend? Neither nor ya, big swine, and don't soon forget it. Slud, don't forget, the troll smiled. See you soon. And he swung. I'm going to jump ahead. <laughs> so uh, there's a troll, there's this last goblin of this clan, and then there's this witch. She's kind of uh, orchestrated this troll to become an agent of revenge, and he's picked up this goblin along the way, who, uh, even though you kill him, if you take out the blades and arrows that kill him, he heals himself and comes back. Kind of like Wolverine, maybe. <laughs> this is later. They're still arguing. They do a lot of that in the book. Slud brushed snow from his bearskin coat and peered out from between the sagging limbs of a towering white pine. The flakes were coming down wet and heavy, and the long, reaching branches were bent all the way to the ground, providing some protection from the wind and the eyes of the enemy. Neither nor couldn't sit still, busying himself with cutting away some of the smaller branches and shoring up the tight perimeter. He tried to block out the fact that thousands of his sworn enemies were marching by, only a few hundred paces away. Slud watched as the last of the riders ambled out of the clan compound, followed by a ragtag collection of goblins banging on drums without the faintest notion of rhythm. The tall gate began to swing shut again behind them, and Slud was half tempted to break cover, slide down the last little drop to the lower ridge, and make a run for it. Instead, 
Neither nor whacked him across the back with a severed branch, and he turned around to eye the ornery little bastard. Oh, so sorry, your majesty, the goblin muttered. Don't wish to interrupt your important stare down to that army you want to pick a fight with. He jammed the branch into the snow to block a hole in the cover. No doubt they're just quaking in their saddles, feeling those hard eyes upon them. Slud chuckled on his way to the trunk and flopped down to the cold earth beside it. Quit fidgeting and take a seat, goblin. Rock Wolf ain't gonna see us here, and the cold ain't gonna back off because you stuck a few twigs in the way. Well, it's a good thing you found a spot where you can't find a fire. Ain't it, you big genius? The goblin countered. Half the fucking forest's burning, but we're sitting here damp-assed in the cold, a stone's throw for a few thousand killers. Slud didn't bother with a response, instead digging through his sack to retrieve the two jugs of pine ale he'd taken from Gruel's dead crew. He tossed one of the goblin he tossed one to the goblin and bit the cork off the other. He spat it away and took the first stinging swig of the spicy brew. He actually missed the foul taste and unpredictable effects of Agnes's mushroom additives, but the harsh booze sent the warming sensation through him that he was looking for. Neither nor frowned before hitting the, biting the cork off the other jug and taking a seat against the tree beside Slud. So, this is the big plan, eh? Walk up to the front door and get drunk. Fucking brilliant. The goblin shut his mouth with a few hard gulps and a soft shiver. Slud still wanted to hit something with his new axe, but he was starting to appreciate neither nor's unflaggingly negative demeanor. He'd never actually spent this much time with anyone besides Agnes before. The huge double-bladed head was ringing expectantly on the ground at his side, but he took another gulp of the harsh brew and wiped the drip with the back of his cold hand. The axe would have to wait just a little while longer. The ale had rancid clumps of fermented pine needles in it and burned going down. Slud had always preferred the sweat and scorch of a good fire, but with a little booze, the cold didn't bother him much either. Agnes had made him spend a few nights naked and alone in the iron wood every winter since he was five. Each time, she'd dose him with another of her potions first, modifying the concoction as he'd grown accustomed to the torture. The last few years, she'd started getting creative before sending him into the cold, just to add a challenge. Once, she'd cut him across his back with a jagged knife, and another time, she'd starved him for a week leading up to the test. Last winter, she'd blown a powder made from dried flowers into his eyes before kicking him down the snowy steps. He couldn't see anything for a full day and night as a freak blizzard pounded the little valley, as if called down by Agnes herself. So, oh, sorry, wrong guy. So. <laughs> so, you was at the Battle of the Moon Blades and Blood Claws, eh? Slut asked. The scarred goblin gave him a hateful glance between gulps. Yeah, I was there. Trolls like to raise up for an overhead smash with your stupid two-handed weapons. I slide in low and open up your bellies with me moon blade for you can swing. Spilled five sets of steaming guts at my feet for your big fucking king. Cut me in two. He raised the jug in a toast. Last thing I remember for a moon blade doctor found me and put me two halves back together. The drums and howls sounded muffled and distant beyond the branches and snow. Hmm, big troll that killed you that day. You got nine claws on him, Slud asked. How the fuck did I know? Wasn't counting the nasty fucker's fingers. Neither nor spat, and a clump of snow fell from a branch beside him. He says fuck a lot. <laughs> he cut you down with a big ass sword. Look like it's on fire. <coughs> Neither nor lowered the jug and fingered the hilt of his curved knife with his far hand. Yeah, that's right. What do you know about it? Slud chuckled deep and mean. <laughs> Was Slud's pop killed you that time? Neither nor grabbed the blade and brought it up fast, but Slud just took another swig and looked down at him. Bad angle, and Slud's neck's tough. Better be sure you get through it with the first swing, friend. Neither nor dropped the blade and snarled. We ain't fucking friends. I showed you where the rock wolf lives. Just like you asked. Now let me go. Time to put your infernal breed back in my nightmares where you belong. Nah. Drink up, goblin. 
This Lord likes your company, and we ain't done just yet. <coughs> Slud took a drink himself. You got lucky with that stab in the back from the big goblin yesterday. See, Slud left a spot empty of your letters just over your spine here. He leaned away from, oh, sure. He leaned away from the tree and jabbed a thumb into the small of his own back above the belt to show where. Threat not. Slud's got your map hidden away safe if you do just one more little thing to help him on his way. The blood drained from neither Nora's face. He looked like he might scream. Give me the map, you fucking lying swine! He stood, still not reaching up to Slud's chest even though the troll was seated. His hand groped at his back, feeling for the scars of the runes cut there, searching for the hole. I only came with you because you said you did me whole. Quiet, little fella. <coughs> Sled brought a finger to his tusked maw and motioned towards the hidden army that continued to march beyond the branch wall. Them bad wolves got good here, and I swear to whatever gods might listen, I'm going to see you dead before this is true, troll. Neither nor whisper shouted. Might be, Slud answered. But when Slud was watching the march, ain't no Khan walked out of them doors without army. So what? Neither nor said back to his down in a huff and chugged his ale. So that leaves the Khan sitting in the big hall with all his blades out stuck in the snow, pissing at fires and looking for us. Slud said with a wicked smile creeping across his face. Yeah, what of it? So, this axe. Chop through that wall in seconds. Slud'll cut down the con for his big fucking clan even knows what happened. Oh, that's it, eh? All figured out. Easy as pie, neither nor said. Then you don't need me for nothing. Oh, there's plenty of guards still manning those towers and watching that hall. No doubt they got horns and bells for calling home the troops right quick. Slud saw you against that hunting party. You killed good goblin. You're fast and quiet. And that's what Slud needs to grease the way. Your blades and this axe will take that throne for anyone's the wiser. Slud raised his jug in the direction of the clan and tilted back the swill with a gulp. He felt nice and warm. You do that, and the map's yours. Hell, Slud'll finish you up proper himself. Take whatever you want when it's true, or you can stay on. Be head goblin just like you used to. Neither nor had a glassy look as he chugged the last few gulps of his own jug. He tossed the empty bottle in the snow, a little disappointed that it didn't break. You're fucking mad as a foaming weasel, ain't ya? Slud thought about it for a moment and shrugged. Yeah, may very well be. I'm going to stop. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Happy New Year to those who celebrate. Thanks for coming, everybody, and we'll see you next month. Um, hopefully, I mean, we're still waiting for word. <laughs> The Godot books is coming soon. Um, <laughs> um, next month, James, James Patrick Kelly and Jen Brissett. So please join us. Hello, good, um, good evening. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hi. Hello. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB, um, a monthly reading series that has been continuously running since, I don't know, the late 90s, I think. Um, and I've been running it for a good chunk of that time. Matt, Matt Kressel is usually my partner in crime, but he's not here today, so David Mercurio uh, Rivera is going to be co-hosting with me. Thank you. Um, we usually have word bookstores selling books, but we don't know where they are and hope they will show up. But if not, Chris... Sharp, what are, you, are you photographing me? You're, are you videoing? Anyway, Chris Sharp has some copies of one of his books, which I don't have written down here. The Elementals? The Elementals that he can sell you if you want intermission. Um, if should words show up and the books show up, 
we will tell you. <clears throat> okay. Over the next few months, we have some very interesting pairings of readers. We have um, October 18th, James Patrick Kelly and Jennifer Marie Brissett. Uh, November 15th, Grady Hendricks and David Rice. December 20th, N.K. Jemison and Christopher Brown. Um, January 17th, Joe Helmreich and T.K. We're not sure who's going to be reading with him. February 21st, Patternell Van Ars Ardsdale and another T.K. <clears throat> March 21st, Chandler Clang-Smith, who is our regular here. Who, raise your hand. She's been reading. And Kelly Robeson. And Kelly Robeson. And um, in May, we have Tina Connolly and Carolyn Yoakum. And we'll have more. We'll be filling in the blanks over the next couple of months. But now, our first reader tonight is Catherine Vaz, who is best known for her fictional chronicling of the stories of the Portuguese in America, often with a magical, realistic a realism twist. <clears throat> Her novels include Sodad, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, I just a Barnes and Noble Discover, a great new writer's selection, and Mariana, selected by the Library of Congress as one of the top 30 international books of 1998. Her collections, Fado and Other Stories and Our Lady of the Artichokes and other Portuguese-American stories have won, respectively, a Drew Hines Literature Award and a Prairie Schooner Book Prize. She's taught fiction as a Briggs Copeland Fellow at Harvard and was a fellow of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. She's a frequent, <coughs> oh wait, you have to talk into the mic. <coughs> you may want to lower it. Um, she's a frequent contributor to the anthologies of Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling, plus a story in the upcoming Mad Hatters and March Hares. Please greet Catherine Vaz. <laughs> that sound? Is that working? Is it working? Okay. Yeah, good. Um, thank you, Ellen, and um, oh, Happy New Year, by the way. Um, and it's great to be back at KGB and uh, to have this nice turnout. Um, I do have a new book out called The Love Life of an Assistant Animator, um, which I hope shows up uh, before the end of the evening. Uh, but I thought I would read instead from, because the topic is fantastic fiction, I thought something more appropriate, especially given that um, I'm from California, and I think the real estate, uh, the ideas of real estate are the same there in the Bay Area as they are in New York City. So I thought that it would be fun to read from a story I did um, a while ago called Our Lady of the Artichokes. Um, which was based on the true incident of my great aunt, my father and all his family from the Azores. And she uh, was facing doubled rent in San Leandro, California, which is right next to Oakland. Um, and she said in an offhand way, if I, uh, if I spray paint the virgin on the wall, we can have this declared a miracle site and they'll leave us alone. Um, <laughs> She didn't do that, but I thought it'd make a great story because not long after she said that, she actually slipped on her kitchen floor and broke her neck in a way that shocked the doctors because it's what they, the vertebra you snap when the executioner hangs you. And um, she, she took off her neck brace in about a week. And, but she um, survived. Yeah, but she survived, yeah. By the way, books are on their way. Oh, good. All right, okay. Um, anyway, the real miracle, though, was she was alone until she was 50 and then met a man she married. Um, and I'm, so I did a, this is fictional, but this is a very Portuguese story that I think translates to people facing rent increases in New York as well. Okay, so this is the title story, Our Lady of the Artichokes. We need to invent us a virgin, said my tia Connie. She came up with her scheme to fight the landlord while I was lying on the sofa, muffled in its original plastic so that it crinkled every time I breathed. He had doubled our rent. She'd already remarked a dozen times, may he die with his mouth twisted. And I should have been fascinated that we were weeks away from being tossed into the street, but all I wanted was for her to keep crocheting while I sharpened my fantasy that a banker would carry me away in his Jaguar. Tia would be grateful for the checks we'd send. We were watching Jeopardy, which she did religiously to improve her English, 
And she said, one night they have a category about the Azores, I win $1,000. Um, Tia, I think you need to be on the show to win actual money. Her squint at me was followed by the broad outline of her plan. We would issue a, heaven, a scream heavenward, and it would ricochet back to earth, that we beheld an apparition of the Virgin Mary outside this very apartment building, Estadio Gardens, on East 14th Street in San Leandro. I asked why the Virgin Mary would think of blazing a path here, and Tia Connie looked hurt and said, I tend so nice those artichokes in front. She'll visit the Our Lady of the Artichokes, perch on the thorns, cry and cry, and then disappear. Crowds will say, come back, water me with your tears. The landlord son of a bitch gets trampled, maybe to death, that part I cannot help. <laughs> the richly piquant part of this miracle was that I, Isabel Serp, a 17-year-old smoker of menthol cigarettes, a roller of my eyes at mass to convey that I believed nothing, would report the sighting. Estadia Gardens would be declared a shrine and just try and lock out women and children where the Madonna had burned her outline in the exterior paint. Tia hadn't dreamt clear to the end of the story, but God could pick up the thread, seeing as he hadn't done much so far. But okay, he had all those baseball players crossing themselves, demanding the downfall of their millionaire enemies. Don't be crazy, I said. I'll get a job after school to help pay the rent. No, you study, sneak cigarettes, be a big saint or a big cheese someday. My job is to worry. What the hell else do I have to do? Answer me that. I've got worries too. No, you've got no worries. What you got now is homework. You tell everyone Our Lady talks with you. She kissed the picture of Jesus and covered him with his brocade square, which she hand brushed twice a week. She draped a baby's blanket over Senor Marmalade, her orange canary, before tucking me into bed under the crazy quilt my mother left behind when she ran off with a dentist. I heard Tia fitful in her room that night. When I heard her slip out the front door, I put on my robe and snuck to the kitchen window to watch her waving around the pastry torch I'd given her for Christmas. Her family in Fontingish in the Azores had owned a bakery. She was using it to brand the outline of a veiled woman near the strip of garden at the front of our building, and my only prayer was that no one else was watching. The last thing we needed was a bill for repainting where a lady of bright light had burned in toast colors the nimbus of her body. I am not without my talents as a liar, but I couldn't sound the first notes of hysteria. Tia Connie had to enlist a chorus of widows from our building. After her day's labor at Snowdrift Laundromat, she joined the, the prayer group kneeling with rosaries near the stain. The landlord must have figured it would create a bigger stir to have them hauled off for vandalism. Clutching my school books, I walked past this, dis this display of hardened female solitude, those penciled brows with hair stiff enough to pry open locks, those wounded, glassy stares. Late one night, I caught her wrapping a noose of clothesline around the neck of her statue of St. Anthony. What's the poor guy done now, or is it me, I said. If I found him head down in the laundry basket, it warned me that I'd upset her, and therefore, he wasn't doing his job as the patron saint of love. Nothing, he does nothing. I'm sick to death of nothing. You're not gonna win him over if you hang him again. I said, he won't learn I mean business elsewise. I'll sew him a new cape if he behaves. Tia, you're totally strange. She held him up. Isabel, Izzy, this is a statue, not a man. You never quit fighting with him. How's he supposed to like you? Well, okay, you and I are always fighting too, she said, and daggled him by his neck in her clothes closet. Smothered laughter brushed up and down us when we arrived at the Holy Ghost Festival. We were 10 days from our eviction notice. I'd listened to Tia's chance of make my girl the next queen, please, Saint Anton. But this year, the honor had been granted to Lucia Souza, a pretty girl with a bum leg. Izzy, you see her leg? Her father got asked to, to pay years ago for the festival. He said no. Look what happened to his Lucia. Never mess with the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Well, he's paying this year, so how come her leg's not better? She adjusted her purse and gave me the eye. Izzy, I cannot explain the Holy Ghost. He is a mystery. 
I was assigned to traipse behind Lucia, and I swear she was leaning on her cane and going extra slowly in an excess of piety and injury designed to turn me into a crazy woman. And so half by accident and half on purpose, I kept stepping on her cape. And Lucia countered with turns and smiles of forbearance. Ah, yes, you live in those shitty apartments with the nut who sprayed her wall with a blowtorch. And I lost my mind and kicked her in the back of the knee of her crippled leg. <laughs> Ten witnesses reported to the police and the bishop that they'd seen me kick Lucia, who dropped her cane, flexed her stupid leg in both hands, and screamed, and then simply walked. The way everyone backed away from me, I could have been a drop of acid. I told anyone who'd listened that Lucia liked infirmity, claimed it as a special mark, and I'd merely done what some doctor should have forced upon her long ago. Her kneecap needed realigning. I'd freakishly reset her leg and ruined her act. But that night, in front of Estadio Gardens, the old ladies were joined by mothers and their children and a few men, and I heightened the call in my brain for my made-up boyfriend to spirit me away, the air filling with a thorny calligraphy of save me, save me. I was in an apricot-colored slip at a window in Paris, waiting over the iron lace, the melted caramel light, my fearing he'd never come to me. We'd eat game birds cooked with their bones, and he'd show me where the knife should go in. I lived with Tia across the way from a diner called Prings with a revolving sign of a chicken brandishing a revolver and wearing chaps and spurs and a 10-gallon hat. This great chicken god of the West faced the outdoor cage of canaries that Tia housed on the side of Estadio Gardens. They were as tart-colored as jawbreakers, yellow, green, and orange, and one little peach fellow who doomed me to sobbing when he died, and one I could swear was blue and a size that made him like a darting eye. One night visiting the birds, I watched the crowd gazing at the version, and Prings was filled with the sheen of pilgrims, business booming, there was the miracle. I sank down near the outdoor cage, rested my head on my knees, and cried for my father. He used to stumble home from the dairy, immaculate in his white uniform, and would fall on the couch with arms open, legs splayed as if broken, as if he'd been dropped from a height. The method he chose was pills. A letter addressed to me said, love is tender, nothing is forever. Goodbye, my darling. My mother vanished. Conceição, his older sister, took me home with her. I was 14. The first night, she cooked three pork chops and gave me two and a half while saying, we have a sick deal, Sir Gopai, yes? You have a car. You take me where I need to go, Store, church, laundromat. I'll never go to the graveyard to visit my brother. He's here now, some in your blood, some in mine. The canary Senor Marmalade was trilling like mad when I walked into our apartment to find my aunt sprawled on the kitchen floor. Jesus, I yelled. No, it's only me. I polished the floor thinking people here to see our lady will want to use the bathroom, drink some water. My house needs cleaning. I slipped. I take good care, bang, I get punished. Life, my neck is not so good. I grab for the phone. I'm calling an ambulance. No, I'm not a peasant. I have to change into a good dress. <laughs> I told her to lie, this, she actually did. Um, I, t I told her to lie still, but she stood, her head tilted. I think maybe the floral one with the tie bow, because my neck, Izzy, my neck asked for a little cheering up. The doctor said, Mrs. Serpa, are you aware you've broken the bone the hangman tries to snap in the condemned? Huh, she said, so what? <laughs> she, was, she was fitted with a metal contraption to keep her head immobile, a silver birdcage with screws I had to tighten. I put her to bed and asked if it hurt. She said, I'm alive, but what is wrong with my child? I whispered that I was fine, just worried about her. Come here to me, she said. I climbed next to her and curled up. With only one hand, she reached into my hair to form a loose braid. What I know about boys is not so much, Izzy, but mostly it is air and attraction, and you cannot study how to make them want you. She said she'd been a lover of parties in her young days, but no one had dazzled her. She'd never slept with a man. A girl must not pretend there's a dazzling when it's only 
hope churning a bit, or fear of loneliness churning a lot. Like a comet forced into a chute, the world poured hard down our street and to our door, and my palm on the door's inside throbbed from the heat of the mob. Tia's surviving a broken neck was the second miracle after the apparition. Even those who figured my kicking Lucia resulted in a fluke cure were willing to think, rethink the violent, inexplicable ways of wonder. Desperate believers tapped at our windows, their sagging, heaving longing pawing at the stucco. The windows rattled in their casings, and mouths and noses left foggy smears from people peering through the slit partings of the curtains, hoping to catch a sighting of the young saint and the old saint. When I thought it was safe to sneak out to the grocery store, I was set upon with a shrieking that swallowed my own shrieking as hanks of my hair were ripped out, my clothing torn, nails gouging my bare arm. I'd engineered a miracle. The virgin lived with us, and they needed a piece of me. A man pulled people off me and shielded me back to the door, my eyes shut tight. I had only the feel of his hands, which seemed to have the weight of wood, but pliable, guiding me home. Strangers surged against him, but he wasn't knocked aside. And when I opened my eyes to say thank you, he delivered me to the door and was already on his way. He wore a blue uniform. His back was a large square like the picture of a swimming pool. An orange bus waited at the curb. I tried to joke with Tia that the third miracle was that I was able to get back inside owing to the kindness of a stranger. On the television, we saw the rivlets of blood were on the virgin from relic seekers trying to scratch off parts of her for souvenirs. And we watched what was right outside, the lame, the blind, the deformed, the woman who pulverized their lifelines into raw meat from clutching rosary beads. Tia and I ate stale Ritz crackers and Senor Marmalade loosed an aria about being low on birdseed. Boots encircled our buildings, stamping out a moat, and then television was still our best way of fathoming what was going on right outside. The vendors of Our Lady of the Artichoke statues, the scapular and candle-waving brigade, the dealers in aromatic oils, the fortune tellers with card tables arrived, with police scrambling to arrest them. When the bullhorns ordered everyone to disperse, a woman rammed her head against the thin membrane of Tia's bedroom window, broke it, got hoisted in, sliced her forehead on the cut glass, and came staggering forth with red cataracts shouting, kiss me. And Tia sat up and Ben said, the truth is I made her up. But people were following the first invader, knocking out the last fangs of glass in the window frame, grinding it underfoot on the carpet. And from inside her metal halo, Tia glanced forward to give each of them her best version of a kiss, pleading, the truth is it was all my invention. My arms deepened to a midnight shade from bruising, from the grip of believers needing to touch me. Half my face was abraded red. The flying glass rested, pinking the threads of the carpet as the police finished their sweep. No third miracle occurred, and we were called charlatans. In place of the artichokes was a trench a foot deep from the crowd taking the roots and any dirt that might have brushed against the roots. My Chevy's snout was smashed. It didn't take long for the landlord to send a notice that in one month, per the previous plan, the rent would increase, but out of the kindness of his soul, he'd pay for a repainting and replanting. Zinnias, mums, instead of bringing certain overwrought women up on charges. Tia forced me to accompany her to a special bingo night at St. Joseph's in Alameda. Her metal headpiece had been replaced with a cloth neck brace. My car wouldn't start, and she was frightened of traveling alone on buses. The bingo ladies liked to carry bleach bottles they'd sewed in two, ringed with punch holes, and fitted with a drawstring knitted top to tote their individual markers. You can be so embarrassing, I said, refusing to carry it. In the hall with the other ladies with their bleach bottle purses and the din of N17042, she made me help her cover the four cards she was working at once. My luck, she gonna change. Going to. You get in with all these Portuguese ladies, start losing your English. No, I do not. Yes, you do. A lady next to her shouted, Mesh, because the barker had taken a 10-minute break from mixing and selecting numbered tiles. Mesh, yelled Tia. 
See, I said, oh, excuse me, I mean mix. Oh my, that is a huge difference. I think you should buy you a nice card, win some money, fix your car, and forget boys where they're no good. What boys? I can't get a date. Because the boys, they're no good, otherwise they ask you out. <laughs> what do you know? You just keep me around for that stupid car. Yes, good, that's right. For your excellent car, that is the reason we take the bus tonight. Ah, oh, Madonna, I lose again. She dumped her markers back into her bleach bottle. Tia, please, let's go home. Remember when you threw your back out working the slots in Vegas? This is a dumb way to pay extra rent. One time I pull one muscle, you don't let me forget nothing. She was near tears when we left at midnight. She'd lost $50. We weren't speaking at the bus stop, except for me to hiss that we'd probably missed the last one of the night. The haze around the streetlights made it seem we'd been swimming in a heavily chlorinated pool and a bus curved down the hillside and glided toward us. We were the only riders. Good evening, ladies, said the driver, and I stormed down the aisle to hurl myself into a seat, but she stood dropping coins into the fare box one by one, and I said, Tia, because from the back where I was, he looked like the man who'd ushered me home during the Our Lady of the Artichokes riot. He was staring at my aunt. She said, where do you come from, senor? His name was Rui Alves from Angra, the capital city of the island of her birth. She readjusted her neck brace. He was driving a bus, he said, owing to his desire to be different, sort of a city fellow, not in the dairy or ranching business like the other Azorian men who came to California. He was strangely tall, with a rock-hewn face, black eyes, a widower, 48. A younger man, said Tia. Hold on, he said, spinning the round, large wheel pressed to his midsection. You're that lady the Virgin talked to. You were there, I said. I had to go see, yes. It was big stuff on the news. And you saved me from the crowd, I said. He turned in his seat to grin at me. No, he said. The Virgin rescued you. The truth is, she was just a girl I dreamed alive, said Tia. The miracle, I made it up. I'm sure she's grateful you did, he said. She sat in one of the pews reserved for the infirm, holding the silver pole and smiling at him as he drove. No one else boarded the bus. It was the last run until morning, and he knew right where to take us if we were ready to call it a night. They married a month later, and he moved into Estadillo Gardens with us and helped pay the rent. One Saturday, Rui piled the three of us into my car and drove us down the coast to the mystery spot near Santa Cruz where a magnetic crossfire throws off everyone's balance. Balls roll up ramps. A person standing still seems to be tilting to the point of falling. A whisper disappears and pops out in the gazebo. Water swirls in the wrong direction between a grove of redwoods, their stiff branches converting them into red candelabra. I held out my arms and my aunt and new father laughed and said I looked to be a mile off. At the point where the confluence was supposed to be strongest, Rui asked Tia, what does it feel like? Waves of her hair pooled gold from the afternoon, ladling out reductions of its own light. She wore silver pumps like a runaway bride because beauty should cause a little pain. She said something along the lines of feeling like him, as if somebody had changed him into an actual place as far as she could see. He took both of us to my senior prom at San Leandro High School and borrowed a bus from AC Transit. My car was in the shop again. With our orchid corsages, we looked like time travelers from the 50s at a party whose theme was underwater carnival with glitter-clotted streamers from the ceiling of the gym to the floor. Rui found the music unbearable, so we each danced two waltzes with him and prepared for an early exit. He was good at weaving us clear of the gyrating bodies. He held my hand as if we were stepping even farther back to the 19th century, as he said, left foot, right, good, now right, left. In the dark, he dissolved with that accent born close to my father's village into lost male tones breaking in waves over the scene, the loud music, our silence. Forget your heartbreak, put on a pretty dress. If you won't go to the party yourself, I'll take you. Step here, now there, like this. Rui was with us for three years before he was diagnosed with leukemia. A fine white powder settled on his papery skin when he was finally in bed at home. 
Within his reach, I propped a snapshot of him, a snap, excuse me, a snapshot of him with Tia Connie at the kitchen table smiling. They just downed glasses of buttermilk, the old live wires, and the drained insides were coated white like the drippings caught off ghosts. The outdoor canaries were allowed in uncaged. Sometimes death will seize a tiny animal and leave a sick person in peace. But the birds were wily and flew so fast in the air of our rooms that they were beyond capturing, as if their bodies were melting, painting streaks in the air, lemon, orange, emerald, and a tartan crosshatch. The three of us were bound in the bright weave of these ribbons, and the birds pulled it tighter and tighter. Put that tray down, look at me, said Rui. I'd been fussing at his bedside. Death runs a scalpel through the jail surrounding us sometimes and says, come out. I sat down, I fell into his sights. Good night, Father. What if prayer is really surrender? Rui said he regretted he would not hold the baby I'd have someday. I laughed and took one of his hands in my own. Baby, I said. Sure, just you wait and then you see, he said. Could we indulge him this once, he wondered, with a fantasy of him being a grandpa. I might own a canary, the tint of limes, who'd screech, joy, 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 when I find out I'm to be a mother. Is it a girl or a boy, said Rui, closing his eyes. A girl, I said. And her name, asked Tia, clutching Rui's other hand. Soon she would kiss his lips as the last moth rose from inside him. Perhaps she'd want to swallow it so she could follow him, but the moth would move at phantom speed and spiral away. Clara, I said, I'll name her Clara. It means light, gap or opening, egg white, clarity. She's stunning, she's dazzling. Clara, shouted Tia Connie, beautiful. It's Portuguese and English. She'll be from that other world and you from this one, heavens. I send her my love, said Rui, teach her everything you know. Come along now, Clara, where shall we begin? This is how to eat an artichoke, cut off the thorns. The stem is called the leg, and it's an extension of the heart. Don't throw it away. Toss the inner protective clutter. The green pan of the heart is delicate. Lots of work for small reward. Life is tender. Everything is forever. There's a smile on you. A picture of you is burning through me. The leaves carry tips of the heart. Pull them hard between your teeth, my darling, again and again. here and also uh, before I forget we use this space for, for free and all that KGBS is that people buy drinks either alcohol or non-alcohol please help support the bar and I'm not sure what books are in the back do we know are, are they here yet are they still not here Yoo-hoo. all right well they're still apparently they're stuck in the subway but hopefully they will be here eventually um, anyway, we'll be taking a break for about 10 minutes, and we'll be back with Chris Shark soon. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB Bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always... Thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.